Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Uh, hi, I'm Mats Villander, and you are listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast. Apologies in advance, but uh, you should expect a bit of a Britfest in episode 30 of the show. What with Fed Cup victories for Great Britain and our special guest, the 1976 French Open champion and BBC presenter, is Sue Barker. That's our special guest today in what I have to say is a absolutely riveting interview. I mean, it's one of the best I think we've ever done and uh, uh, I hope you'll enjoy that with us. We'll also, we will throw in a healthy dollop of Rafael Nadal and and review the week's tournaments of course as well we'll do a preview of this week and uh, our talking point of the week will be players that had one incredible world beating week and then pretty much disappeared without trace or at least didn't follow it up so before we get into that uh, we'll just uh, explain who we are, shall we? Uh, I'm David Law, uh, a BBC Radio 5 Live tennis commentator. I'm uh, joined here on the Tennis Podcast by Catherine Whittaker. Catherine, how are you doing? Hello, hello. I'm doing very well. Good. And Catherine travels the world with the, the greats of the game on the ATP Champions Tour and has worked with me for the past six years. It has been God, that sounds one a heck of time. a week. It, it, I tell you, that's about a, a third of your life, isn't it? It is, yes. I turned 27 yesterday, so God, six okay, years. Okay, it's a quarter of is, your life, then, oh, almost a quarter. Maths, but it's, it's a long time. <laughs> hey, you should have stuck with a third of, the, third of your life. You wouldn't have even turned 20. Crikey. <laughs> that would have been good. Um, I tell you what, it has been a good old week though on the tennis tour, hasn't it? Especially if you're a Brit. Or an organiser of a Chilean tennis tournament. They must just be beside most themselves. Most specifically, or, or an Argentine fan of a guy called Horatio Zabayas, but uh, who's been uh, uh, vying for attention. Uh, on the uh, the tennis circuit with Rafael Nadal, the man that he beat in the final. But first of all, Catherine, how good was it to see Rafael Nadal back on a red clay court? Yes, uh, it, it, it was quite a sight, wasn't it? It was a really heartening sight. Um, and just in case enough tension, attention wasn't already being drawn to him, he wore purple, which... Uh, just to make himself stand out. Apparently, um, apparently it was it was atomic purple. Ato- wow! Uh, I, I, I made they the, created the, uh, a new shade especially for yes, his comeback. I made the, I made a terrible mistake of of, uh, of saying he was wearing a pink shirt on Twitter, and I got suddenly absolutely lambasted from left, right, and centre. Oh um, even though I was trying to make out the point that I want one, but um, they weren't having it. Apparently, it's a it's a it's a purple shade. Well, we pink and purple are obviously the colours of the season, aren't they? Um, anyway, we digress. It was wonderful to see him back on a tennis court. Um, 
I uh, alarm bells. I'm. I don't think anybody should overreact that he didn't, you know, storm through and win the tournament. But nonetheless, you'd have to say it was a surprise. Having having reached the final, it was then a surprise not to see him go on and and win. But I've just watched especially the after going at a final, break up in and, the third. Uh, yeah. All credit to Horatio Zabaios. <laughs> yeah, no, you have to. I mean, he can play a bit, can't he? My word, left-handed drop shots. Yeah, sli- he, I mean, was... he hits aggressive slice backhands. Goodness me. He he played like Nadal, didn't he? A bit, but um, still, as yeah, slice backhands, mixed it up a bit. But um, he just looked like a real pro on a clay court, didn't he? He just looked totally at home, unfazed by the the obvious circus that was surrounding Rafa throughout the whole week, and um, actually managed to steal some limelight from him which is uh, yeah. pretty good going I'd say well he's on a bit of a run as well this bloke I, I had a look at his record he's won 20 of his last 21 matches including his last 15 on clay so I mean you know uh, perhaps we I think there, there is an assumption that, that somebody's just going to come in as sort of Nadal fodder really isn't there mm, and, it, and, and it's I, interesting. I was waiting there's almost this sort of tennis counterculture in South America There's there's a lot of um, ATP 250 clay court tournaments that happen in South America and they happen concurrently with you know, 250 events elsewhere in the world and they perhaps don't get the same attention but there's a lot of very good clay court players that um, are earning a very good living and playing some very good tennis based largely on that that circuit um, uh, that, that perhaps don't get the attention that... Um, sort of similar players of, of similar rankings that playing uh, elsewhere in the world might get. And uh, I'd say Zavaya no, falls no. into that category. And, and I also think as well, it, it shows that if, if you get TV coverage of a tournament like that, you get so many different storylines that perhaps you hadn't thought of. And, and I mean, it really, it really struck me that I, I said, I mean, I've seen this guy's name around for a while. I've, I've probably seen him play once or twice. But by the end of it, I really cared about his progress and his yeah. future prospects and I was looking up his results and thinking you know I wonder how far this guy could go but uh, what what it does do as well is it uh, it, it provoked uh, our uh, our twitter debate of the week which is um you know, players that have had a world beating week like Horacio Zabias and then pretty much disappeared without trace and or at least not really managed to live up to the the potential that they've shown in that one week that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit later today uh, in the tennis podcast after we've gone through the rest of the tennis week but uh, just to finish off on the Dow, I mean, the most heartening sight was the fact that even though he was wearing that heavy strapping around the, the knee he looked in pretty good nick he did, yes. Um, as I say, I've only seen seen highlights of, of his matches um, and more extended highlights of the final. Um, I, I mean, I think you quoted somebody in the in the, or perhaps it was a David Law direct quote. I can't quite remember last week I, saying that there's if, no such thing. If when Rafa can move, he can play. Um, and to me, he the most important thing was that he looked like he was moving well. You know, there there are a few points. Here and there, where a lack of match sharpness showed through, you know, I, I saw a couple of points where uh, Zabios played a drop shot, and 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 Rafa got up to the drop shot brilliantly, you know, as well as anybody could, but then just didn't quite hit the right shot once he got there. But I think that's just a question of sharpening up his match play. I think I think the most important thing to take from last week, uh, certainly if you're a Rafa fan, is that he is he's moving well. I mean. 
we need to see more to see if he's you know to know whether he's moving you know it's it's a question of points of a of a percent isn't it at the top of the game so um yeah we'll have to see but uh, no cause for alarm at this stage i don't think yeah the uh the, the 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 omens the omens are good certainly and I mean he's playing this South American swing for the first time since two thousand and five and I was looking up and he the last time when he played that he lost his first match against Gaston Gaudia who was then the French Open champion at the time and then he, he went on a run where he only lost one match in his next eighty two on clay so uh, you know he, it's it's quite a good omen really the old uh, South American clay court swing for him so if he can produce something like that I think uh, the Nadal fans will probably be quite happy uh, anyway we had lots of other tennis on the circuit and before we talk about the other men's tournaments Catherine how about the British David the British Fed Cup team eh how about them yeah uh, the thing is though I'm not surprised really having each 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 uh, tie they played I thought looked at our squad looked at, at the opponent's squad and thought yeah we ought to win this you know we've got proper proper depth in our squad and uh and an excellent coach um, in Judy Murray. So uh, she's impressive, isn't she? Yes, what a what a lady, and she's uh, so the players. Obviously, you can tell they respond to her so well, you know. And she is a genuinely positive influence on all of them. I think. Um, I, th- I, th- I think she is sometimes misunderstood by people as an overbearing tennis mother and. Uh, yeah, you've got you've got sort, really? you know experience of commentating with her. I don't know her personally, but I certainly don't think she's anything like that. I think she's a she's not she's the most easy to talk to. Yeah, indeed, person. and very um, very good. You know, hearing the way Heather Watson and Laura Robson talk about her, you know, she sounds like a um, a real supportive and uh, inspiring person to have around them. So uh, it, yeah. it's nice to think of our young talent being nurtured by somebody like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Did you, uh, did, you know, how, how how do you understand the Fed Cup though? How 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 up on it are you, Catherine? Because I mean, I, I like the competition. Don't get me wrong, and I think it's fantastic that Britain have have managed to win this tie. But I don't get it really. I mean, in April we're playing a playoff to get into World Group Two, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, I was a bit surprised when I read that. I mean, I quite liked the format of this this week that's just happened in Israel where there's a number of ties going on concurrently and and there's lots of interest and and you know that seems to be logical you know you've got all your players in the same place at at, at once you know let let's knock off as many matches as we can and and really get the tournament underway and now we've got to wait till April and we've got to play this slightly bizarre sounding Euro Africa World Group 2 playoff match make of that what you will um I th- and it, it's funny, a, a, f- um, a few people that I know, you know, obviously the Fed Cup's been reported on in, in the sports news here because of our success in it. And um, my brother, in fact, mentioned to me, he I don't think he ever knew of the existence of the Fed Cup. And he said, oh, have they never thought of combining the Fed Cup and the uh, and the Davis Cup and, you know, having a proper... And I, and I said, yeah, that sounds, that sounds like a great idea. I'm sure it's been thought of and I'm sure there are reasons why... Um, you know, I suppose one of the reasons that they don't do the uh, the everything in one city thing is, I mean, I know it's a, a fairly lowly level, but if you actually looked at any of the pitch, and we didn't have any proper TV coverage here, but I did see some still photographs, there's nobody in the crowd. 
And is that right? You well, that is a shame. Yeah, and you, 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 what I mean, what I'm saying is, that you wonder whether if the if it's not home and away, and therefore you don't have that home aspect of your own country playing against the other team, maybe you just don't get the crowds. No, and and you can't deny that that is the magic of the Davis Cup. And if you extract that from the equation, you know what are you left with? What is what is making the tournament special? So um, I do see a strong argument for that. But um, it just seems, you know, there's obvious interest now, you know, having seen what, you know, a small level of success in the Davis Cup, the effect of that is having here. It seems a shame now that that sort of momentum is not going to be capitalised on it. And the product of that is sort of a slightly head-scratching, um, you know, as we say, world, world, world Group 2 Euro Africa Zone playoff in April. Um, yeah. Which you know, those words don't aren't going to be a mouth-watering prospect for your armchair tennis fan, are they? Which is a bit of no, a shame. I but not. but how, however, I, I dare say there'll be some real interest from the the British media in that tie. I mean, I, I know there will for a fact. I know B- BBC. Uh, 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 I think on the radio side is certainly interested, and as is the website. You know, they'll be. They did a lot of coverage. In fact, they did sort of columns from uh, from the the tie in Israel, um, and the draw takes place in a couple of days' time for that tie. And if we get a home tie, Great Britain, it'll be the first one in twenty years. Wow. That wow. Well, that would quite be quite while, something, it? wouldn't it? Yeah. And yeah, it, so. and I think I think it would be a spectacle. I'm glad to hear that there's media interest broadcast interest in covering that because it's great to see you know there have been some fantastic British Davis Cup ties over the years but you know for so many years it felt like one player you know doing the job single-handedly or two players sometimes two yes sometimes two players but often you know one of Tim or Greg was missing I never forget Greg David Um, but you know it's undeniable that there were often ties when it you know I, I, the one that stands out in my mind is is Great Britain against Thailand when Tim Henman pretty much did the job single-handedly yeah. and that's pretty much the one that made him think you know what I don't think I'm I don't think I can do this anymore it, well exactly and and sort of what's the point really okay I win this one but then I can't keep doing it single-handedly and it almost devalues the competition because you oughtn't be to be able to win ties with one player it is about depth and you know to bring it back to the fed cup that's what we have now we have depth in a squad you know we have two very solid top 50 players who are on the rise you know probably in real terms they're actually higher ranked than that and you know and and kiothafong and i know elena baltash is making uh, you know making strides and yeah conta as well there's true depth and that's really hey Catherine, exciting maybe if you maybe if you and i join the teams we'll add to the depth me, <laughs> me and the davis cup team are you in the fed cup team how about that yeah i'm i'm the ace in the pack they're just I'm they're just awesome, keeping me up the, their sleeves to i'd be really good at making the tea i tell you i'd i'd, I'd be really good at that um the uh, there has been another tennis going on this week in montpellier how about this richard gasquet won his second title of the year taking him to 14 match wins and one loss He's got the best record on the tour. He has, yeah. It's yeah, good, isn't it? I, I don't know what Tell more you. to say about Richard Gasquet. I mean, nobody's going to deny his talent, are they? I mean, I'm pleased to or see... Or his it. results I, now, this year. his results at that level. But, I mean, he, he had a tournament win in Doha prior to the Australian Open and, and did nothing there. So, I, th- I think he's God, got... He got to the fourth round. It's not that bad. It's not... It's, 
Yeah, but that's sort of where you'd expect him to reach for his ranking. You know, it's not a standout. He won't have left that tournament thinking, oh, you know, brilliant. That's uh, couldn't well, have done yeah, any I better know, there. I know, but he, he's now he's now coached by the guy who coached uh, Ivan Lubacic, uh, Ricardo Piatti, I think it is. Yes, and uh, and and I heard last night uh, on Twitter from one of the tennis commentators, Robbie Koenig, who uh, is a, a former doubles player as well, and, and you know somebody who knows knows what he's talking about, and he reckons that this is the launch pad for for Gasquet to reach mm. more than more than one grand slam semi final he thinks that that sort of level is is definitely there for him I and mean, of course he's reached one before but he thinks there are more in him well i mean the next two slams are the french and wimbledon which i would say are his are his best chances of of a grand slam run um he plays well on clay and grass um in fact, though, is that not where his two previous um, semi-finals have come Well, he from? certainly reached the semi-finals Wimbledon, of, uh, of Wimbledon, didn't he? Overtur- he, in he overturned a two-set deficit against Roddick in the semis, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, um, I, I, I was lucky enough to commentate on that, and it was one of the one of the highlights of of my twelve years of, of wow. working at Wimbledon. Yeah, Fantastic. that was quite something that match. Um, well, look, I'd, I, I. I I don't. I wouldn't rule it out, and I'd like to see it. But dare I say it? Time is running out a little bit you for a little Gasquet. Old cynic, it's a Catherine long Whittaker. time ago a now that he was fifteen and the most promising young talent anyone had seen. And a nine-year-old on the front cover of Tennis Magazine in the in yeah. France, of course. I mean, maybe that's the problem. Maybe maybe that set him back all of that. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I feel for him if that's the case. You know, I, I don't know how I would deal with, with that sort of thing at that age, but, you know... Don't think we're going to have to worry about that, Catherine. <laughs> no, I think... <laughs> I'm 27 and haven't hit the big time yet, so... I'll tell you, uh, you, I, you, I think you I'm in the safety zone. You a contender zone. yet. i tell you, I'm working on my serve. I know I'm almost 40, but, you know, <laughs> I, I've still got a chance. Um, <laughs> well, maybe include us in our sort of where, were the, where are they now conversation later. Um... Uh, in Zagreb in Croatia, Marin Cilic won his third title. I mean, he's another one, isn't he? He's been there or thereabouts. He's reached a Grand Slam semi-final. He keeps racking up tournament victories at that sort of level, but hasn't yet managed to transfer that over. You just wonder whether at some point it might click. Yeah, um, he's been mentioned a few times on Twitter in our uh, you know unfulfilled potential discussion, which is possibly a little harsh. I know... When I talk to Goran about him on the Champions Tour, Goran despairs a little bit because, you know, he loves the guy and he thinks he's a great player. And um, But I know he would love to see him come into the net more. You know, they work together a little bit in a very informal, um, on a very informal basis. Um, Goran travelled with him to a couple of tournaments when Bob Brett had to take a bit of time off. And, and he, I know he tried very hard to encourage him to to use his his big game his big serve more to his advantage which Goran saw as you know coming into the net more and and uh, you know looking to make the approach um and uh, he doesn't seem he doesn't seem to have adopted that in particular um which I know Goran despairs of a little bit um but he, uh, maybe he's a bit like Andy Murray in that way you know he has to 
come to terms with these sort of things in his own time, make his do, own do you decisions. Know, do, you know what, uh, do you know what Goran said uh, in commentary? I was doing that match between Murray and Chilich at Wimbledon, and uh, and I said to Goran, you know, there was a big rain delay, and it's you know two sets to love for uh, for for Murray, and I said I said to Goran. Goran, you know, you're going to leave now and go into the, the locker room and, and talk to Marin Cilic. What are you going to say to him? And he goes, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to smack him. <laughs> God, that's a scary prospect, isn't it? That's nice, isn't it? Um, but I think that's how anyway. he makes him feel a lot of the time, you know. And and I can imagine Cilic would be rather frustrating to, to have a vested interest in because he's very laid back, isn't he? You know, I've heard the words uttered, you know, possibly too nice to be a to be a champion i'm not i'm not sure i believe in that because i've met a lot of champion tennis players in in my time and a lot of them are very nice indeed so i'm I'm not sure how much logic there is to that but there's definitely some ingredient missing Um, you know there are some people who said catherine whittaker too nice to be on the tennis podcast but no she's showing the other side to herself so anybody can do it yeah, absolutely. Me. She's just awful, isn't she? <laughs> um, <laughs> we uh, we have the tournament going on. No, she's not really. She's all right. We've got the tournament going on in Rotterdam uh, this week, and a notable result, Catherine uh, Grigor Dimitrov has, uh, and the tennis podcast's own Grigor Dimitrov, I should add, uh, has beaten uh, Bernard Tomic in the first round in three sets yes. about ten minutes ago. Moments ago, we we stalled recording in order to bring you this this happy news. Um, it's yeah, it's good, flash. isn't it? It's good. Um, you know, we're, we've learned not to get carried away, but we are cautiously um, excited about the week yeah. ahead for, uh, yes. for Grigor. We, we, we look forward to that. And it also marks the, uh, the return to action of Roger Federer. Um, and tournament, of course, is um, organised by Richard Krychek, uh, is the tournament director, has been for the last decade or so. And what a nice job he's done in retirement, uh, Catherine. I mean, all sorts of players retire in different ways, but there aren't too many more together human beings than Richard Krychek, who also plays on the ATB Champions Tour, which uh, starts in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, indeed. He's one of those guys that's uh, he's got life sorted, hasn't he? He's one of he's he's one of the the guys on the Champions Tour that definitely got retirement figured out. Um, you know, I don't think he experiences the the black hole that many of them talk about. You know, he's, he's found something that that interests him and and keeps him busy and and stimulated, and he he does a fantastic job of it. You know, people are full of praise for that tournament. He still keeps himself in amazing shape. Um, still plays brilliantly whenever he pops up on the Champions Tour. I don't know how he finds the time to do that, but he does. Um, and uh, he's a yeah, he's a very pleasant. Pleasant. Uh, I was going to say young man, but he's about twenty years older than me. Well, you, see, you know, he's only a, hold on a minute. He's only about two years older than me. What are you saying? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you have to choose your words carefully, Catherine. Just because I've got grey hair, you know, doesn't mean you can take liberties. Anyway, <laughs> the uh, the Champions Tour gets underway uh, with the old boys uh, in a couple of weeks' time, as we said. I think it's about eleven days from now in Delray Beach. There's uh, the ATP tournament there too. Catherine will be off there to uh, to join up with John McEnroe and. Matt's Philander and all the greats from the past and, uh, and a great week of tennis in store. So if you are in that neck of the woods, do try and get a ticket for Delray Beach for the Champions Tour event. Yes. It'll be well worth your work. It's a good while, in that one. You. Yeah, you already got your suntan cream ready, haven't you? I have. I didn't even unpack it from Australia. I just left oh, it in the case. Dear. I thought, no, Sickling, I'm going to be needing that in a couple of weeks. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Just rub it in. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, on the on subject of people who, who sorted out their retirement in, in a nice way, uh, on the back of Richard Krychek uh, conversation there, another one has to be our special guest on the tennis podcast this week in what is... I reckon, having just heard it again, and we've just listened to the interview ourselves before we we came on air, probably our favourite interview in all 30 episodes so far. It's with Sue Barker, the 1976 French Open champion, now a very respected BBC television presenter, uh, does all of Wimbledon's uh, presenting. And somebody, I think, you know, you, you tend to build a... An assumption of, of of what they are like as human beings, don't you, Catherine? And and I I didn't think I was going to be quite as engrossed in listening to Sue as I am. I mean, then that's no. to take nothing away from her. You know, I think she she I've known her for a long time. Always enjoyed her company. She's always absolutely charming to us on on every level, whether we're colleagues of hers, whether we whether we're working with her at a to- on a tournament side. But I didn't realise she had quite so many wonderful stories to tell and it, it was it was a thrill to, to listen to them i mean she was world number three uh, and uh, and at 20 years of age she won the french open i mean it's 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 quite a record no absolutely i was it, it, i engrossed by that interview and as you say quite quite taken aback by how engaging um and open and and natural she is you know she's She's so understated in in everything she does as a broadcaster, sort of understated brilliance, really, because she's, you know, her role in in many ways is sort of that steady, firm hand on the tiller presenting role, which she does brilliantly. But and but a lot of people, a lot of people of of my age that you know see her presenting sport on the BBC have no idea that she's a Grand Slam champion. You know, not only is she a fantastic broadcaster, she also happens to have been a, a Grand Slam champion tennis player, which is pretty fantastic. You know, a lot of a lot of ex-sportsmen turn, try and turn their hands to that sort of thing and, and are surprised to find how, how difficult it is. Um, and she's done both of them to the to the highest level, and I think she's she's an absolute example to... to female broadcasters and a very classy lady she is and after that enormous build-up uh, <laughs> see if she can live up to it well i think she can here she is sue barker talking to me at the barclays atp world tour finals a few months ago at the o2 arena here's sue barker well so it's a pleasure to have you with us here on the tennis podcast and here we are at the o2 arena the top eight players in the world and the tennis is staggering. The show is even more spellbinding at times. How does this compare to the years in which you were were a tennis player? I mean, is, is it recognisable even? No, not in a million years. This is so different from anything, anything I've ever seen before. I think the O2 is one of the best tennis arenas, probably not the best tennis arena that I've been in and I think the uh, arena staff just do it really well they make it that lovely pulsating noise they make it dramatic they make it spectacular the players love it Uh, but it's all down to getting a big crowd in and it's great the way the British public have just accepted this event and it's a sellout all the time you know a million people have come through the turnstiles to watch you know, tennis in Britain in, in November. I mean, it's just fantastic. It just shows the passion that British people have for the sport in this country. And I just think it is a wonderful, spectacular event. And having the top eight, I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but the matches have just been spectacular as well. I think the court surface suits it. It just, everything seems to work. I think, you know, Chris Komodo puts it on, just should really give himself a massive pat on the back because it's something that, you know, we in Britain are immensely proud of, that 
the event is successful and the players love it so much. I think that for me, the, the best place I played in, and you know, I'm sort of name-dropping here, was the Royal Albert Hall, because we played the Whiteman Cup there. And that was the most special arena I played in. I also played in Madison Square Garden, and uh, I do apologise to all Americans by saying that Royal Albert Hall was... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live and you can watch on your phone or on your smart TV in HD. Sounds great. There's genuinely nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere. And can I just sit and watch court shows in Longland all day? You sure can, David. Wherever the stories are, the rivalries emerge and the generations clash, you can watch it all with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Be there when it happens by subscribing to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription better but uh, I suppose it's just the history of it all and my background that made it special but those are the two best arenas I ever played in. One of the parallel I I would draw and you you can correct me if I'm wrong here in terms of the the competition we have four players at the top that are almost untouchable and then another group trying to break in and of course you know all those years ago you had Martina Navratilova, Billie Jean King, Chris Evert, these wonderful players and 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 a player like yourself and many others trying to trying to break into that company. What was it like trying to do that? Hard <laughs> and very annoying. I suddenly thought, why wasn't I born in a different era? Because, you know, Chrissy and, and Martina and I were all in the same year, all born in the same year. We grew up as juniors. I first met Martina when she was 11 years old. So, you know, grew up. Uh, and uh, But it was fantastic also because it's lovely to be playing in an era that people remember. And I think outside of, you know, maybe the Williams sisters now and Graf and Sellers, you know, the other, you know, big, uh, as far as women's tennis is concerned, big era was Chrissy Evert and Martina Navratilova. Obviously, King and Corp were, you know, who I grew up watching, you know, before that. But uh, just to be around at that time, because I think it's when women's tennis really took off. I know Billie Jean King tried hard even before that, but everyone fell in love with Chrissy. Everyone admired Martina and their matches um, still, you know, I still have a a few of them that I can sit and watch. They were fantastic matches, you know, very different from what we see today. But when you think, you know, wooden rackets, balls out of a box, you know, the courts weren't as good as they are now. They they did exceptionally well with with the tools that they were given and uh, they were just immense athletes and and admired worldwide. They were the first, I think, women's sports 
stars that were global sports stars. And, uh, you know, Chrissy still can't walk down a street, even though she's been retired for years. You know, people remember and uh, respect her and also, um, you know, it's remember the, the great matches that she produced with Martina in so many finals around the world. I, it was a privilege to be involved in that. And, you know, I'm lucky I got, you know, two wins against Chrissy. I got a few more against Martina because Martina tended to have more off days than Chrissy did. <laughs> but, you know, so I'm still proud that I was able to, to beat them at least at, at, at one time or other. But uh, it was a great era to be in. And, I, and I also that we are such good friends today. You know, I work at Wimbledon. Chris works at Wimbledon. So does Martina. They always come in and say hello. And we hug each other, and we reminisce, and we just chat about how we're getting on, and and you know fa- how the families are, and all this sort of stuff. And uh, it, it's lovely that all these years down the line, you know, still really good friends, and because uh, we went through so much together. I've noticed that. I mean, I, we sometimes see pictures on Twitter that Martina or Chrissy will post of, of, of when they all get together, and uh, and and I saw a picture of of a, a charity match that they played not long ago and there they are at the net shaking hands and then they then it develops into an arm wrestling competition and <laughs> and and you sense that there's great affection but all those years ago was that there do you think or, or, or I mean you know we sometimes wonder I mean I speak to, to to the men players of the past and they say there was a camaraderie there even though they were butting heads all the time I mean what was it like well I think it, w- it was different for, for us back then and different for Chrissy and Martina unlike today when when the money is so much better and you can afford to take with you your partner your coach your um, you know your nutritionist your physio and that we took no one Chrissy didn't even travel with her father who was her coach you know Martina had nobody coming over from the Czech Republic so we used to, I mean there were times we used to practice with each other when we were playing each other because there was no one else to you know, play so there was that immense you know we just and we used to go out for dinner together even before matches you know the night before if you know you're at a loose end rather than eat on your own so there was a way of being able to switch off by being incredibly competitive on the court by understanding that you know off it you're either just going to be sitting on your own and be extremely lonely and, and maybe not enjoy it or just get on with it and try and distance yourself between being off court and being on court and Chrissy and Martina did that immensely well I mean you could not get to bigger competitive people I mean they're competitive in a game of Scrabble I mean anything that they used and we used to play all sorts of games when it was raining you know Trivial Pursuit all these things I mean they were immensely competitive whatever you did but they were also good friends because you know even Martina took uh, Chrissy skiing with her and that's how she met her husband Andy Mill you know so I mean they, they they used to go off and do things together but but could always you know make the difference between being competitive on court and being you know friendly off it. So you've obviously become a recognisable face to, to many younger people now in, in the, the presenting chair on the, on the BBC and maybe some of those people aren't quite aware of just what you achieved in the sport. And <laughs> Most if, of them aren't. <laughs> and if one is to look at the, the biography and sees that you were a French Open champion in, in 1976, what, what are your memories of that, that experience and particularly that final day? Well, probably not as great as it probably should be in a way because I was sort of up and coming. I was, um, you know, right in the top four at that time, you know, Virginia Wade, Chrissy, Martina and myself. And, and I was the sort of, you know, 
I'd been making really great strides and I knew, I just felt I was going to win, you know, I thought I was going to win one. And then I won one and I thought, oh, great. You know, it was almost like matter of fact in a way because, you know, Chrissy wasn't there and uh, she was always the queen of the clay court. So it was always like, a well, I didn't beat Chrissy to win the French Open, but, you know, you can only beat who turns up. And um, I just thought, well, that surely is going to be the first. I will win another because I just felt I would constantly improve. And sadly, it never happened, you know. Um, I had a really sort of traumatic Wimbledon in 1977 that just dented my confidence unbelievably. And I never really got back to being, and that was when I was like seeded four, you know, being as good as... Well, um, I was playing really well and uh, Martina was in the quarterfinals uh, playing Betty Stover. So I was all primed for a Martina uh, semi-final. And in the other semi-final was Chris and Virginia. And Betty Stove won it and so it was a whole different sort of suddenly you know one minute I was going to be the underdog now I'm sort of expected to go through in it and there was like like Andy and Tim and everyone has found immense pressure on British players at Wimbledon and uh, it just got to me a little bit and I didn't really play my best and I still had a chance to win that match but I just played so poorly and my coach who actually he didn't come to watch but he was watching on TV just said tactically it was probably the worst match he's ever seen me play and I thought wow well what a place to do it and it was almost like my mind was I should win this and I'm going to play either Chris or Virginia in the final and I you know I was I was only like 21 and I I don't think I was as mature as I should have been and I I was believing that I had already won this match before I'd won the last point. It is a fatal error in any sport that not to respect the person that is on the court that you are opposing. And I just felt that I would always have the beating of Betty. I hadn't lost to her all year. And just to prove a point, three weeks after Wimbledon, I beat her in Denver for the loss of one game. So to lose on the centre court at Wimbledon, it was just the most harrowing, hurtful experience. And, of course, my dream of, you know, and then to see Virginia. Oh, no, because Virginia was already through, so I was thinking I'm going to play Virginia in the final. It was just, that would have been my, my dream final, and I threw it away. I absolutely threw it away. And I really struggled, and it was in an era where you don't get sports psychologists coming and knocking on your door. I don't think they even existed back then. And uh, I never really reach that level again you know there were times when I peaked and you know I mean I beat Tracy when she was number one I beat Chrissy again I beat Martina again but I never strung together enough wins to really be win you know major championships again. You think that was a psychological bit of damage perhaps inflicted on you by that 77 Wimbledon? Yeah which I put on myself I mean I just you know I still beat myself up about it and we have a you know it's because you know I have accepted it now and boy you know I've had an immensely happy and and and, and you know good life you know I've gone on doing traveling the world covering sport I am not moaning trust me even McEnroe but he knows it winds me up so when McEnroe comes over at Wimbledon it's like, well tell us about your semi-final in 1977 I'm like oh. but uh, no it won't go away but you know maybe it, you know it's taught me a you know very valuable lesson sadly I wasn't able to do it when I was playing but it uh, it certainly makes me appreciate you know what the players are doing today far more you know they they are so um so professional now and so more so much more mature at younger ages than we were you know maybe that's just the way it is in life but they are just programmed to go out there i mean to watch someone like a Roger Federer at the age of 31 still be as hungry as he was when when he first came on the tour to be able to sustain that year after year after year i mean i just I, i'm in such admiration of him 
And of course, since then, you've, you've gone on to, to forge an incredibly sex, successful career for the BBC and on TV. I remember before then you were with Sky as well, yeah. all, all those years ago. Can you remember the first time you, you did TV in a presenting role? I'm wondering how the nerves compare to stepping out on centre court. Well, I, I was sort of eased into it. Like I said, the first time I ever did live television when I was actually presenting it, I was as terrified as I would be, if not maybe more, because I suddenly thought, oh gosh, I have no. At least when you go on a tennis court, you've got control over things. On a team, you've got no control over what's coming up on the screen and what's going to happen. So it was probably more terrifying. But I, I, it was a funny story how I got into TV because I sort of announced my retirement in '85 at the Australian Open. And it caught everyone by surprise. I knew my injuries were getting worse and I just, I had lost in the second round of the Australian Open and I just thought, I can't, you know, I used to be, you know, I got to high as world number three. I can't be losing week after week in these early rounds. It just wasn't fun and I thought, I've just got to go off and do something else. And uh, so I announced my retirement. It all caught everyone by bit by surprise. Went back to my hotel and there were a number of messages for me to phone people and it was all, like, you know, the newspapers from the UK and, and all this so I thought oh I don't want to speak to dead people don't want to speak to people and I suddenly looked up and there was a, a message from a man called Gordon Bennett and, and Gordon Bennett you know in this country is, 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 is a well known sort of slang phrase and I thought well who's winding me up here and said will you please phone Gordon Bennett so I thought the one person I am going to call is Gordon Bennett well it wasn't a wind up Gordon Bennett was actually the name of the man who uh, ran the tennis for Channel 7 in Australia and he offered me a job on the spot so if he hadn't had a name like Gordon Bennett I probably would have never phoned him up and then never been offered a job to work on Australian television and I worked on Australian TV which was great for like five years doing the um, Australian Open and a few other events around it and really learnt my trade there and it was a wonderful network to work with and then I came back as you say work for Sky and then onto the BBC so I've been incredibly lucky that I sort of announced my retirement and I was employed within an hour so it was absolutely fantastic. Well there you go told you didn't we uh, Sue Barker there talking to us uh, a couple of months ago at the ATP World Tour finals and you know I, I could listen to her all afternoon I mean the good news is Catherine that was only part one of the interview. We've still got part two to come next week. And uh, and in that one, she's going to be talking about the, the, the tour today. She'll be talking about the rivalries between Murray and Djokovic. And she'll also tell the story, a wonderful story, I think, from her perspective of when she had to conduct that interview with Andy Murray on court after he'd just lost to Roger Federer in the Wimbledon final. I mean, that it kind of... It was a... A moment that brought lumps to the throat of the world, I think, watching Murray um, crumple in an emotional heap. And there she was, the one who had to, to, to give him the microphone. Yeah, well, she was in many ways very much responsible for that moment, you know, along with Andy Murray, obviously. She, in that split second, made a, you know, an editorial presenting decision to give him the microphone. And that was, you know, that could have that could have gone either way and that you know Murray's not famous for his or at that stage wasn't famous for his uh public speaking um and it was absolutely the right decision wasn't it that was one yeah. of the moments in uh, in sport of last year yeah, and that was in an olympic year as well you know it still was a standout moment at the end yeah. of last year and and that was largely due to to the decision that she made in that split second um and she handled it brilliantly, didn't she? And she yeah, talks she... about it very well. Um, it's worth tuning into next week. Yeah. Sue Barkett, part two, coming up next week here on the Tennis Podcast. And on this week, just to finish off, we're going to hear uh, the views of your 
very good selves on Twitter. You've been writing in to us at Tennis Podcast, and uh, and we've been really enjoying some of these because Mr. Horatio Zabaios, having had the week of his life, you know, we very much hope he has many more weeks of his life and, and has a great career in total. He's 27 years of age now, and who knows, maybe this is the start of something big. But there have been many a player, haven't there, over the years, Catherine, that have had one great week and you thought, this guy, this is the guy. And it hasn't quite happened for them. So have we got any other examples from our followers on Twitter? We sure have. Um, yeah, they've been been flooding in. You only posed the question about an hour ago, and uh, it's people. There's some people out there with uh, as good tennis memories of, as we've got. Obviously, um, first up, we have got Tim Gibson, who's, who who uh, states the obvious, but it needs stating. Uh, he says Lucas Russell, of course, he has to be in there. And uh, oh, well, well hold right. on a minute, hold on a minute. Just before we we start writing off Lucas Russell, he only did it seven months ago. Well, hang on, you already. Off, uh, Horatio Zabaios. He did it about seven minutes no, ago. No, so, I was uh, ju- just just speculating, you know. But poor old Russell. I mean, that was an unbelievable performance. Well, as it stands currently on uh, Monday, the eleventh of February, he is a one tournament wonder. <laughs> Although he did manage to play seven hours and two minutes in the Davis he Cup did. alongside he t- did. Thomas Burdish to win the longest Davis Cup rubber in history. He However, Catherine's decided he's a he's a one tournament wonder. Well, in in the contest on the in the context of this discussion, yes, I have. Moving on, <laughs> we've got Ren Robles, um, who I believe is one of our regular contributors, who says Guillermo Garcia Lopez in Bangkok. 2010, beating Nadal en route to the title. Um, I'd forgotten about that one, so thank you, Ren. Natalie at Natas says uh, Yurtsi Janovic in uh, Paris 2012. Well, here we go again, Catherine. Poor old Yurtsi. I mean, he's barely got out of nappies, this bloke. That does seem a bit premature to me because whereas with Lucas Russell and and Horatio Zabayos, they have been around for a while and then they've sort of had one out of the blue performance. Yurtsi Janovic, that was very much a, a breakthrough performance, wasn't it? He just hadn't been on the scene at all um, before Paris 2012 um, in any notable way. And yes, he he hasn't exactly followed it up in sparkling fashion, but it has only been two or three months. So, um, but, but if I'm going to be consistent, as it stands on Monday the 11th of February... He's a one tournament wanderer as well. So uh, <laughs> moving swiftly on. Well, we, we, um, we should add that we, uh, Catherine and I, are zero tournament wanderers. So, uh, <laughs> yes. You know, we, we, we know our place, don't we? <laughs> yeah, we do. Um, our esteemed colleague David Levy, hello Dave, if you're listening, uh, says Scott Draper winning Queens uh, back in was that ninety eight? Yeah, nineteen ninety eight beat Lawrence Tielemann in the final, an incredible tournament in which Pete Sampras and Tim Henman and Goran Ivanovic all dropped by the wayside, and uh, and eventually it was Scott Draper who came through and won the title. He who was compared the first time I ever saw Scott Draper, he was uh, he was actually compared to Rod Laver. Such was his left-handed <laughs> talent. I mean, oh, you that's know, not fair like on anyone, is it? Poison chalice or what? Yeah. Oh, that poor bloke. He he went on to um, have a stab at being a professional golfer, didn't he? After he retired. Yeah, absolutely. I think he he's now involved in the Australian uh, tennis system now he as is, well. Yes. Top top guy, lovely guy. Really he good is bloke. lovely bloke. Yeah. Uh, next up, we've got Dean Brown at Dino Brown, twenty ten 
who uh, agrees with Natalie, uh, saying maybe a little early, as we've pointed out, but uh, Janovic has hardly won a match since the Paris Masters final. I believe which... in you, Yertsy. Us six foot seven inch <laughs> people have got to stick together. Yes. Is he really six foot seven? God, eight. That, six I foot mean, eight, that actually. Is, He's bigger than me. That is big, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Freakish, You're not relying on your it? movement at that height, are you? <laughs> We're um, all freaks. The intriguingly named Unseeded and Looming. Yeah, says, well, I'll tell you, that could uh, be me. Says, yeah, it's a bit of an ominous title. Says Rosano, Virginie Rosano, former top 20 player, but still a more than surprising um, upset. Um, yeah, when she beat Serena Williams. I guess Williams. referring to Serena That's Williams earlier this year. Wow, yes. yeah, what a result that was. Absolutely. Um, and then David Levy start, decided to have uh, throw in another two cents. So that makes it four cents for Dave Levy. Uh, and uh, his um, rather pot-stirring comment this time is, Serena does it for two weeks, four times a year, and not much else, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, Dave, so you can keep that one, mate. That one's, yeah, uh, that one's stick rubbish. that in your pipe and, and smoke it. Uh, Fiona Lamb says, Russell, question mark. So I think we've covered that one. Matthew Jones says James Ward at Queens in two thousand and eleven. Now you see, I've got I've got a I've got a bone to pick with anybody who says James Ward. My view would be that James Ward actually overachieved. I don't think it was a question of him not fulfilling his potential. I think it was him performing that week above his potential. I think he's a good player. I think he's sort of t- he's got the capability of being top hundred, um, maybe higher, but. That week he was a semi-finalist, and he was he wasn't too far away from making the final. I mean, it was just one of those amazing weeks that he overperformed. I agree with you there. I agree. Uh, David Grice agree. says, "I don't Ma- like this." I know. I I have nothing more to say on the matter. It's so boring that I agree with you. I think we should just move on. Uh, David Grice says, "Mariano Puerta, French Open two thousand and five, smiley face." So I don't know whether that means. He's a fan of Mariano Puerta, or he's just generally in a good mood. Yes. But there we go. Let's just assume he is. Yes. Bree uh, at For the Tennis uh, says Rosano is, as well, but she points out that Serena did help her a lot. Um, yes, not Serena's best match. I've got one, one to throw in, Catherine. Oh, well, yeah, so do I. Cut. Okay, here, yeah, here Spanner in the works. Here go we go. It. Roberto Caratero, 37 years of age, he is now. And in 1996, wow. he was ranked outside the top 300 in the world, right? Nobody had ever heard of him at all. And he went through and he beat Geordie Aracy, Malavai Washington, Arno Birch, Gilbert Schaller, Yevgeny Kafelnikov, and Al- Alex Karecha to win the Hamburg, as it was then, Super 9 tournament. And no, tell me you haven't reeled that off from memory. Tell me you have your right. laptop open. I, I, I can tell you. Otherwise, I will be I rem- intimidated. I remember it very, very well. I have to say. I mean, I remember he he played with a ponytail and he just came out with the most extraordinary swashbuckling tennis to win the title. And everybody thought this guy 
is really going places and he never did another thing in his career i mean he he never won another title he never did anything i have to say i've, I've just reeled off the names he beat from the computer indeed but uh, i mean he was uh, he was nowhere uh, i i mean actually hold on a second I, I i do him a slight disservice i said he was outside the top 300 i got that bit from wikipedia and it's actually number number 143 according to the atp world tour site so a, right. a slight difference there uh, but uh, still i mean uh, you know an amazing uh, an amazing result really that he came from nowhere and he i tell you what catherine when you're in delray beach at the champions tour event um in a couple of weeks time have you got carlos moyer there certainly have right. well ask him about roberto caratera because they're best mates and uh, and he knows all about him he's he'll stay in touch with him and uh, and mm. I, I know that he, he's a really good friend of caratera um but uh, you know perhaps we can get the carlos moyer view on what happened yeah, I'll, I'll do exactly that. Um, my one to throw into the pot was Filippo Valandri, who I remember having that week in Rome yeah. in two. Nice old backhand he's got. Seven, where he yeah. beat Federer. Uh, Federer was world number one and uh, pretty much unbeatable at the time. And Filippo Valandri, I think, beat him in in straight sets. Um, and did he ever run to the? I know he didn't win the tournament, but I think he ran through to the final. Um, is that correct? I haven't backed this up with, with the I aid of Wikipedia. The research has gone astray in the tennis podcast. Catherine Whittigy used to be absolutely diligent to it's, the hilt. It's it's the confidence I have in, in my <laughs> in my tennis brain, David. That's, that's what it is. I see. Okay. Have um, you got any others to throw in just before we finish? We've got a few more to throw in. I'll reel them off quickly. Paul Masterton says Barry Cowan. I assume in reference to his being two two sets to one up against uh, Pete Sampras. Um, Again, I think all... I think that's a bit harsh to Barry. I think there's yeah. there's a classic uh, sort of uh, almost overachieving in a. In yeah, a, you know, I think that it was those two sets that were an aberration rather than the, than the rest of his career. Bless mm. him. Um, Pedro Andres Campos says Mardi Fish, Lepenti, Medvedev and Isner all come to mind um, I think I'd agree with Isner so far, uh, at so this far. stage but I'm not sure I'd agree with the rest uh, David at Knitted Knight says Gaudio at the French Open or perhaps Shiras at Queen's or even Johansson in Australia. Oh, you're talking about Grand Slam champions now. Yeah. Well, I just suppose if you take the point that they, they produced the most extraordinary tennis for two weeks of the, their lives and got Grand Slams and didn't ever do it again, I suppose you're proving the point. So fair play. Uh, Tom March said, says Russell against Rafa at Wimbledon. I think we've covered that one. Uh, Phil at Phil4321566 to identify him specifically says no one will remember this but in 2009 bangkok korolev took Janepri to the cleaners oh i remember it best best display of serving and returning i think i've seen pure attacking ball striking at its best don't think he's been close since evgeny korolev yeah no actually i don't remember the match but i have seen uh examples of korolev play where he's just played as the americans call it lights out tennis lights out tennis to quote Brad Gilbert, to take them to the woodshed. Oh, ouch. <laughs> Doesn't sound right with an English accent, that one. Antonio Serrano says, I recall Pavel, Andre Pavel, at Canada in 01. He saw off or after. It was a big upset. Um, yeah, it was a big upset, but pa- isn't, Pavel had a isn't good career. Pavel, yeah. 
Uh, Carolyn Russell said, oh, she's re- she was responding to your Caratero anecdote and she says that she remembered that one. Uh, Stuart A90 says, James Ward was pretty awesome at Queen's a couple of years ago. Uh, like to believe it wasn't a one-hit wonder though. Um, so agreeing with you there, possibly. Paul Benwell says, Yurtsy Yanovich, last year's Paris Masters, he was unplayable in caps. Hasn't replicated that form since. Um, can't argue with that. He's still got time. He's still got time. Uh, Antonio Serrano, uh, Portas beating Ferrero in a five-set epic match at Hamburg. Albert Portas, the player I I managed to give a nickname to. Oh, the one you've man just man been man waiting for me to bring to that him stuck. It was, it was the drop shot dragon. That's what his nickname was. Did you know, I, I led him into his post-match press conference after winning the title, and I said, ladies and gentlemen, your Hamburg champion, the drop-shot dragon, Albert Portas. First question, yeah, f- first question, Albert, so um, why do they call you the drop-shot dragon? And he just looked at me and he just said, him. <laughs> there we are. Uh, That's the, brilliant. The, the only, the only, uh, and just just to make the point that I, it wasn't just because it sounded nice; uh, it was because he did have the most audacious, ridiculous forehand drop shot out of nowhere, and it left even Leighton Hewitt and Juan Carlos Ferrero floundering on the baseline. So do look that up on YouTube if you can. I think we better call it a day here, Catherine. It's been very, very nice talking about these uh, these memories from days gone by, and we'll have more from Sue Barker in the next edition of the Tennis Podcast, in which she'll talk about tennis today and she is just great to listen to i'm sure you'll agree having heard part one of her interview in this edition of the tennis podcast thanks for joining us thanks Catherine, and we'll speak to you soon Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 